Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open your word up to us this morning. We can come to this text as we, we really look at, at one verse primarily today, and we can understand it. Um, we can have a sense of what it's saying, but we can't internalize it. It can't become real to us. It, 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 it can't tend to our, our sorrows, our concerns, our fears, our stories, the everyday stuff of our lives apart from the work of your spirit. And so would you send the spirit to, to have your word come to souls that are ready? Would you make us good soil this morning for your word? What we ask that you would do today is what we ask every single week, that whether someone is here, they've been a Christian for 72 years, whether they're coming back to a, a church gathering for the first time in 15 years, whether they've never walked into a church building before, whether they are near to you or indifferent to you, God, what all of us need more than anything else is that we would leave this time more impressed with what Jesus has done more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and lift Christ high that our hearts and our souls and our minds, our affections, and even our bodies would be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. N.T. Wright, who is a, uh, a bishop in the Church of England, says something that a lot of people would say. If you were stranded on a desert island, you could only be given one book. You know, what would that book be? He says, if I was on a desert island, a deserted island, the one book I would have would be the Bible. And if I could only have one book out of the Bible, that book would be Romans. And then if I could only have one chapter out of one book of the Bible, that chapter would be Romans 8. Many people agree. You might agree with him. Romans 8 is an absolutely stunning, stunning chapter. Let me press his, his uh, statement, though, a little bit further, that if I could only have one book, it would be the Bible. If I could only have one book of the Bible, it might be Romans. If I could have one chapter in Romans, it would definitely be Romans 8. And if I could have one verse of that chapter, it would be Romans 8, 1. It is an incredible declaration of how God's grace, it changes everything. If able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Romans 8, 1, page 944 in the Bible's in front of you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the, the translation that we typically use as a church, known as the ESV, but I want to read a few others to just help color the, the verse for you. This is God's flawless, perfect, liberation-declaring word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Geneva Bible, he concludeth that there is no condemnation to them who are grafted in Christ through his spirit. The Phillips paraphrase, no condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Jesus Christ. The message with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Feel free to grab a seat. The, the statement of this verse really is 
stunning, this declaration of liberation, this declaration of right standing, I just wonder how often and deeply we believe it. My prayer journal entry from the 28th of August, and you could probably pick almost randomly any day over the last, I was going to say year, decade, 20 years, and it would say something like this, but this has been my ongoing prayer recently. This is how it began. Father in heaven, almost every morning I am having to force myself to approach the death. I wake and the first and loudest things I feel are guilt, shame, exhaustion, frustration. Probably some of you at least can relate to that. Sam Allerby in a recent blog post, Three Precious Words for This Troubled Soul, says something very similar. He says he wakes up most days feeling this, this gnawing sense that he does everything wrong and everyone knows it. Just feels condemned. And he goes on and says, why? He says this, he says, what have I done with the life God has given me? I've squandered opportunities on an hourly basis to love him and to love others. How can we even quantify this loss? I should feel crushed by the weight of it all. People who think they have their lives together baffle me. I've been around human beings long enough to know what we're really like. That's honesty. This word condemnation, it means the verdict of guilty, but when the Bible uses it like this, it's not just the verdict of guilty that, that you've been, been, been weighed and you've been tried and found wanting. It's not just the, the verdict guilty, it also includes the punishment of that guilt. To be condemned means to be guilty under God's just judgment for how we've squandered so many opportunities to be brought into the courtroom of God's just judgment and out of his holiness to be rightly judged is found wanting. Sam is saying that he's guilty as charged. I am guilty as charged. And he's actually saying we're all guilty as charged. If you go back a few chapters in, in Romans, in Romans chapter three, you have this collection of verses which are quotations from what's known as the Old Testament, the first two thirds of your Bible. And this is one of the most potent places that show that we all fall short. Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just builds and builds and builds. Now you might be like, am I really that bad. Um, it depends who you compare yourself to. 93% of Americans think they are better drivers than the average American. <laughs> what do you think? Although it's that, that George Carlin joke where it's like anybody driving faster than you is a maniac, anyone driving slower than you is an idiot. 90% of teachers, 90% of educators think that they are more skilled educators than their colleagues. We have a tendency towards overestimation, including our own goodness. These verses aren't saying that you are as bad as you possibly could be, or that you're equally as bad as everyone else, but it's saying in light of God and his infinite holiness that we fall far short. Romans 3.23 
captures this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's true for all of us. That's the Bible's testimony. Whether you accept it or not, that's the Bible's statement. But it's not the final statement. And it's not the last word. It doesn't have to be. Love this post from Sarah Hauser, Find Freedom from Self-Condemnation, says this, we might know all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, but some of us get stuck here. We see only our faults, and so we repeat words of condemnation and phrases of judgment like a broken record, wincing at the scratches rhythmically remind us of our own brokenness. We end up being so sure of our failures yet so unsure God's grace is enough to cover them. So we wake up, and the first prayer that we have is, what is wrong with you? Romans 8.1 offers something so much better. The therefore of this verse, it means progression. It means that this may have been true, that the judgment might have been judged, that the failures were, were, were grander and greater than we could possibly imagine, that we fell so far short of God's glory, we have no clue how far short, but that's not the last word. There's a transition. Yes, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that's not the final truth. And if you extend the verses, sometimes we get stuck. We get, verse, we get stuck before Romans 8.1. We get stuck at Romans 8 or 3.23. Let me finish with 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified is the opposite of condemned. Or we might say the way it's phrased in Verse 34 here is a positive way of phrasing it. In 8.1, it's a negative. It's saying no condemnation equals you are now justified if you're in Christ. Sam Allerby says this, no condemnation means God will never count my sin against me. Even the most shameful things I've done will never be used against me. His disposition will forever be one of favor. He will always be for me, never against me. The most shameful things I've done, the stuff that I honestly keep trying to forget about. He will always be for me, never against me. That's what no condemnation means. It's an absolutely incredible statement. Allerby's uh, approach that even the most shameful, that he will never use it against, he's never gonna add it up. He's never gonna bring it out. He's not gonna be like, well, I I know I said I forgave it. I know I said that it was gone, but you did it again. So I'm gonna bring it back out and I'm gonna make the case again. No, there is no condemnation. And then this verse goes on and says, for who and how does this happen? And this beautiful phrase, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the word those, this nonspecific those. It's just saying anyone. Anyone that locates themselves in Christ now lives not in a place of condemnation, but justified, right standing. It's not that we didn't fall short of God's glory. It's not that we pulled ourselves together. It's not that we started living rightly. 
It doesn't mean that there's changes that don't happen. It doesn't mean there's not growth and maturing that occur, but that's not those that have, those that have no condemnation are not those that finally figured out how to live better. It says those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not about what we do. It's not our achievement that righted us. It's not our performance. It's not our resumes. It's not our track record. It's, it's not our parenting. It's not how good of friends we are. It's not you know, the, the shows we choose not to watch and the good that we choose to do. It has nothing to do with us. It only has to do with how we are located in Christ. Yesterday, I was at a cross-country invitational down at Civic. Uh, one of my kids was running out. There was over 1,300 athletes competing that, that ran at this. This is, I think, like the largest um, gathering like this in the, the region. They've been putting this on um, for, for years. Seahome High School hosts it, but schools come from all over the place. I think maybe 41 schools or something like that. It was just absolutely stunning. And they do, uh, usually in high school, the, the race is a 5K, so 3.1 miles. But for this one, because there's so many races, so many heats, they do a two-mile race. And so this two-mile course, and it was stunning to watch the, the person that came in first. Out of all of the heats, the top time was something like 9.55. 9.55. So that means you're running like, I don't know, was like, like 4.57 a mile. Like, I don't like to go that fast when I'm on a bike. I mean, this is just, it's a stunning speed to be able to do that. And what was great is this guy that came in, he was so far in front, running with such ease. Like when you watch some of these like faster, long distance runners, they just glide. You just think they have like wheels in their shoes or something, right? Or they're floating. And it's just, he just comes through and he just waves at the crowd. He doesn't, you know, and I was working the shoots and so they were coming in. And that's a disgusting place to be because when you're in the shoots and you're trying to get people through, typically with cross country, they're there's buckets everywhere because people are so exhausted and they're trying not to throw up and they're passing. I had one guy lay on top of me. He came across and then just throws his body on top of me. And I didn't, I, I told, I'm a germaphobe. Please don't put your armpits on me. True, <laughs> that is gross. I'm like, where's the sanitizer? Oh, the early days of COVID. I want sanitizer everywhere. It was disgusting. But this guy came across. Nine, I think it was 9.55 or 9.57. It's incredible. And then afterwards, they do the awards, and he stands there, and he's the, the fastest runner. And he's handed his medal, and he's handed his swag that he won. See, what happens when we have faith in Christ, it's as if we got to go take that number one spot. It's as if the achievements of another were credited. It'd be like I looked at the, the, the report, and it's like if I removed his name from number one in his time, and I put my name there. It'd be like the person that came in last out of everyone. The slowest person yesterday ran it in 31.48. It'd be like if that person wasn't at the bottom of the list, but now at the top. Actually, if we're going to play out the illustration more, it would be like the person that, that DNF, they did not finish. They got hurt on the course and they couldn't even complete the loop. It'd be like that person being said, you, you did it. The achievement is yours. Not because we earned it, not because we merited it, but because Christ achieved it. His, see, it's, or his resume. It's like, it's like we got his resume, but our name on the top. Or it's like, think of like uh, someone getting married. It'd be, imagine a guy who just ran up so much debt. You know, he got like four degrees in school. He's got $700,000 of student loan. He's got no money to his name. And he marries someone who is ridiculously wealthy. His debt becomes hers and her wealth becomes his. 
Through faith in Christ, that's what we're, we're told. We, we get this imparted righteousness. We get the robes of Christ wrapping around our frailty and our failure. That's why this text can say, although the condemnation is earned, it is no longer yours because of what Christ has done. If I extended the opening illustration, if I pressed it further, you know, one book, Romans, one chapter, Romans 8, one verse, Romans 1. Now let me give you one word, Jesus. You need no other word. His name means God is salvation or God saves. We have no condemnation, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. His name speaks a better word. Even the most shameful things won't be held against us. Love the song Rock of Ages captures this so well in one of the verses. It says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no, as much energy as I got, and it never takes a break. Could my tears forever flow, I could feel terrible about my sin and folly and foolishness. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And that's what this verse is saying. Always for me, never against me. I shared how my prayer journal started. Perhaps you can relate. I know Paul, the one who wrote this letter, can relate. If you go back one chapter earlier in Romans 7, really the, the last half of it, this is basically what you have. I'm a mess. Man, the good I want to do, like, don't do the bad I want to do. I keep doing. There's this war waging inside of me. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Therefore, there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love how Ray Ortland captures this. He says, the gospel does not deny the enslaving grip of sin, but the gospel does deny the damning authority of sin. There is no condemnation. Always for me, never against me. I was flying back from Dallas uh, last month, and there was some really severe thunderstorms that were coming in. And so I'm looking at my phone, waiting for the flight delay. It didn't happen. I show up at the airport, and there were tons of flights that were delayed or canceled. I mean, just people everywhere. When you've been in the airport and stuff is getting delayed like this, I mean, there's just humanity everywhere. Everyone's discouraged. Everyone's frustrated. Nobody knows when they're, they're leaving. And I'm watching my phone just waiting for the, your flights delayed, and it never came. You get on the PA system, we're ready to board your flight, da, da, da. everybody start boarding by group, and so we're going, and you can hear like, hey, we need to board quickly, we need to try to beat the weather out, we, need to, we, we have the green light to go, so let's get on the, get on the plane, and we're, we're getting on there, and the engines rev up, and we, we taxi back from, from the gate, and, and we're going out on the tarmac trying to get up towards um, the, the runway where we can take off, and the engines, you know, spinning up a little bit louder, you know, everyone please be seated for takeoff, and then all of a sudden, tire screech. Engines, turn off. Pilot gets over the PA system. Uh, we didn't make it. We're going to have to wait. And you just hear the, 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 the groan across the airplane. You know, it's like one thing to be, you know, delayed when you're actually in the terminal and you can wander around and use a bathroom. And, you know, now you're stuck in a seat next to other people. And, and people are wonderful. I always have this thing. This is a bit of a side. I never wear short sleeves when I fly because the thought of like arm hair on my arm hair is just, 
I guarantee you. So I tell people this and they laugh, but then the next time they rub arm hair, they go, you're right. It's disgusting. So, you know, so I'm sitting there all bundled up like I'm going to Nome, Alaska. I don't want anyone to touch me. And, um, and oh, it's just, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. They're still waiting. Two hours. And you're frustrated. It was 107 degrees in Dallas. And, and when the airplane turns off, the AC doesn't work that great. So, you know, two hours in a metal can with other people made in the image of God <laughs> with arm hair and no deodorant. And you're just going, Lord. And then you hear the ding, like that unmistakable sound of the PA. And the, the pilot comes on and says, we are now cleared for takeoff. That word now never sounded so sweet. It changes everything. We don't have to wait anymore. I'm on my way. I get to see my wife and my kids soon. It's, it's coming. We're finally going to get in the air. We're going to be on the journey. Look at that word now in this text. There is, there, there is now. There is now. This isn't just a future promise. This is a right now reality. This is how you get to wake up. When you wake up and you go, I'm such a mess. Oh, conviction is good. Condemnation in Christ is unwarranted. Now, no condemnation. Now. I wonder what it feels like to live in that now. I was, uh, my brother had their first baby. It was November 27th, uh, 2006. It, my, my oldest son was actually born the year before on the same day, so it's easy to remember my, my, uh, my niece's birthday. Anyway, so we get the call. Tegan's born, you know, they, after a few hours, they were ready for visitors, um, and it had been snowing, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty snowy day, pretty snowy winter, if you remember it, um, but I was like, I still want to come see you guys, um, so I go and I get a pizza for them, and I swing by, and the Seahawks were on, and so like, why don't you stay and watch a little bit of the Seahawks, and I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds like something I should do after you just had a baby, and so, so we're, we're eating pizza, and we're watching the, the game, and, and then, you know, after an hour, so I was like, I got to get home, it's Owen's birthday too, and the roads are getting really bad, and on the way home, like, the, the snow had just been piling up, it had just been dumping, 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 and this is, it got down into the teens, it got down to the single digits actually later that week, it was just a terrible storm. Anyway, so I'm driving home. There's probably a foot of snow on the ground. I'm on Cordata Parkway on the north side of town, and you can kind of see off in the, there's not very many cars at this point, but off in the distance, you can just see those brake lights that kind of blurred through, the, through this blanket of snow. And I come up, and I see this lady stuck in her car, and so I, I pull in behind, and, and I jump out to try to help. And I hadn't dressed for it. I didn't have gloves. I didn't have a hat. I didn't have any of those things. And I'm out there, and I'm trying to like, sh- you, know, mo- you know, pull snow away with my hands from under the tide trying to push, you know, we're not going anywhere. Eventually, another car came, and, you know, everyone's trying to be the good Samaritan, so we're all trying to help this person get out of whatever snowdrift she's in, and another person, finally, we're able to, to push her out, but it took forever, and I'm out in, you know, t- uh, uh, you know, 12 degrees in howling wind, and you're just getting pelted by snow, and my fingers got so cold, like just down, just bone chilled. They just, they just hurt. You know, and you're freezing. And I remember the feeling of when she finally got going, getting in my car. And, and, you know, the engine was still running. It was so warm. And you shut the door, and, and, and there's no wind that's hitting you anymore. You're not being pelted by ice. And I just sat there on this warm chair in this warm car. The environment hadn't changed at all. 
Everything around me was still so stormy, but where I was was located in this place of safety. There is now no condemnation. That's where we're held in Christ. He's always for us. He'll never not be for us. What's it feel like? It feels like assurance. It feels like comfort. It feels like being re-identitied. It feels like being protected. It feels like being safe. It feels like this beautiful line from the song in Christ alone that we can live with no guilt in life and no fear in death. Why? Because right now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's always for us. He's never against us. Now, if you're going to ask me for one of my favorite verses, this is one I'm going to go to. Romans 8.1. If you're going to ask me for one of the most unsettling verses, I'd probably give you Galatians 2.14. And what I want to try to do is connect these two as we enter into this series through what we call house rules. We'll try to put these together side by side to illustrate how wonderful the grace of God is and some of the ways that we can mess it up. Galatians 2, I'm going to read from verse 11 to 14. We're not going to, I won't go through this whole text, but this is very unsettling to me. But when Cephas also, he was known as Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and and, and, uh, disciples, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's really unsettling. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew. Now, this may feel kind of cryptic, but let me give you the, the short version of what's going on here is that there was a, a sort of, okay, you believe in Jesus, but that's not quite enough. You have to adopt the sort of ethnic and cultural practices of being Jewish, certain ceremonial laws to show that you really actually are one of God's people. It was a sort of, Jesus actually didn't do enough. Condemnation still sits on you until you modify your life in such a way that, that you look the part that you look the right way, that you perform the right way, that your achievements begin to mount up. And that's very unsettling, that we could be out of step with the gospel. See, Peter was rebuked not because his doctrine was messed up, but because of his behavior. It wasn't your doctoral position is incorrect. It's your conduct is not in alignment with your doctrine. And it's leading people astray. Even Barnabas, I love that line. If you know anything about Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. He's like the cheery great guy. He's the guy when you come and say, I'm such a loser. He says, no, just come here. I love you. Christ is good. I mean, that's Barnabas. And Barnabas is like, yeah, you don't measure up. And so Paul comes and says, your behavior is denying the doctrine you say you love. Say it this way, faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal precision. We need something else. Francis Schaeffer captured this in his book, uh, The Church Before the Watching World, says this, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. Right doctrine, right belief and 
behavior that matched to some extent that belief in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Ray Ortland says it like this, gospel culture is not an optional add-on. It is as necessary to our orthodox integrity as is gospel doctrine. If we must preach the gospel in our doctrine, then equally we must embody the gospel in our church culture. If we neglect the fullness of this pastoral responsibility, we risk allowing our churches to settle for the truth in theory, but a lie in practice. So one of the reasons we say in our church, like the culture of our church, it really, really matters. The culture of your home, it really, really matters. The culture of your friendships really, really matters. The vibe, the tone, the feel. Does our church feel like we believe Romans 8, 1? This was really brought home to me, this, this connection between you can have the doctrine right and yet get the culture so wrong that it, that it it damages what we believe about the doctrine. This is brought home for me. It was probably 10 plus years, and um, this story happened a number of times, but I remember the first guy that it happened with. It was a, a wonderful Dutchman from, Dutchman from, from Linden, and he, he, just big. You know, when I think of, I got a number of Dutch friends, and I just always think big. Like, they're just always big, tall and massive, mountain of men, you know, just and like gigantic, you know, and not, some of them are not, so, um, but, but this guy was, and I remember watching him as I would be preaching, he'd be sitting here week after week after week, and I would just know it's just him weeping, and uh, after I got to know him enough, I felt comfortable to ask him, I said, hey, I, I just, may I ask, it seems like God's really stirring something in your heart, what's, may I ask what it is? And he just, with tears in his eyes, says, I just haven't felt grace in so long. And I began to hear more of his story. He grew up in the church. Two times a Sunday, every Wednesday. In a church that has what's known as the doctrines of grace, that we are saved by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, that we bring nothing to the table, that Jesus did it all, everything. Grew up in a place that had those doctrines, had those catechisms, had those confessions. And yet it was a place, as he began to talk to me, where, where you could not mess up. Oh, if you stepped out of line, if your family was not put together, if your kids rebelled, oh, it was so shameful. What did you do wrong? As he began to tell this, this story, and as I began to listen to other people tell this story, it just brought this truth of like having the... the, the accurate doctrine, but a lie in practice, it begins to make the doctrine unbelievable. I can read that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but when my church condemns me for the very sins that Christ Jesus died for, it sure makes it hard to believe it. If Christ is, if God in Christ is always for us and never against it, shouldn't the church always feel like it's for us and never against us? If God in Christ does not use even the most shameful things to condemn us, then the church must never use the shameful things in our lives to condemn us. Now, conviction, good. Godly grief, good. Oh, we want to grow. You're going to hear this in the house rules of transformation and maturing and, and, and labor and work and toil. Those are not enemies of the gospel. But what's the home it gets to be done in? It's a house of grace or a place of pressure. 
I asked my wife this morning, she had just woken up, and so it's probably the wrong time to ask her. I said, uh, do you ever feel condemned? <laughs> Terrible wake up, I know. Um, and she goes, why? What did I do wrong? I was like, you just woke up, nothing. Um, I said, I'm preaching on condemnation today, and I was just wondering. And uh, she said, she goes, all the time. I feel like I'm just constantly in this hole that I can't get out of. And then I asked, I said, do you feel that way before God? She goes, never. So why does she feel that way? Me? Bummer. Us, maybe, not you, but her community, maybe. Stuff she felt growing up. Stuff she felt from peers in high school. Our own narratives and tendencies to raise the, the flag on all the failures and not the accomplishments of Christ. In seminary, I got in this long-standing debate with a buddy for probably about two years. Um, uh, and his position was that we should never call Christians sinners. He says, I don't call myself a sinner ever. And I'm going, yeah, but there's some verses. Like, how, you know, we kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I'm not going to solve the debate for you. But here's what I think he got right. The Bible speaks of, uh, so here's what I think he got right. The more central way, the more constant way, the more central identity of a, someone in Christ, of a Christian, is not sinner, but words like this, chosen, loved, saint, heir, daughter, son, royal priesthood, mine, bride. And I think what he was rightfully doing is saying, oh, no doubt we sin, but our core identity in Christ is not sinner. Romans 8.1 is saying your core identity, oh, yes, you do things, and I do things meriting condemnation, but in Christ, there is none of it. I don't remember the last time I woke up and prayed this, God, thank you that I'm waking up today justified. Thank you that I'm waking up to new mercies. Thank you that I'm waking up with steadfast love covered. I, I get there often. I get there, but it, but it takes effort because typically what I'm looking at is what I've done wrong, not what Christ has done right that's then given to us through union. So be unsettled. Be unsettled, moms and dads. Be a bit agitated that you can unsay with the way you parent what your kids learn about Jesus and Redeemer kids. Be unsettled husbands. That your wife can have unsaid to her what the gospel says to her. Be unsettled wives that your husband, that your actions, the way you interact can undermine that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Friends, Fellow employees, peers, high school students in your peer groups, middle school students, on your sports teams, wherever you are, that our actions and our behaviors can be out of step with the gospel and unsay what the gospel says. Now, be unsettled, but let me end with this. Be inspired. Because if that's true, if we can unsay it, you know what we can also do? We can reinforce it. 
We can reinforce it with our kids. We can reinforce it with our spouses. We can reinforce it with our friends that there is now no condemnation. We can reinforce what that actually feels like that we might feel it more. Galatians 2.14 should unsettle us, but it can also inspire us. And I will end with this. Let me just celebrate you, Redeemer Church. You are a church that flinches grace like no other community I have ever been in. You get this right. You've shown it to me. You continue to. You show it to my wife. You show it to my kids. My oldest daughter, she's 20, she sent me a text this last year just out of the blue. And this was her text. She's off at college. And and this was her text. Dad, it was such a privilege to grow up in our church. That's bananas. (laughs) Pastor's kid thinking, what a privilege. You know why? It wasn't the doctrine. Oh, I'm grateful for it. I don't want to undermine it. But it's the culture that came from it. It's you. It's you. It's you. She didn't grow up with with right doctrine, but the practice was a lie. She didn't grow up in a place where the most shameful things were thrown against her. She grew up in a place where she knew deep down in her heart that it's okay to not be okay. That God was always for and ever against her, and she felt the same from you. The reason for this series is simple. We want to talk about gospel doctrine and gospel culture and orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of culture. We want to celebrate where God, by his grace, has cultivated it well here, and we want to grow in the areas he hasn't. For this week, I'll just leave this parting word. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for any of you that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the truth and resiliency of that verse, regardless of how we behave, regardless of the degree to which we believe it or model it, that that doesn't change how true it is. And yet, God, we know that the degree to which we cultivate an environment that feels like it will help to reinforce the truth of what Christ has done. So God, I thank you for the way you have cultivated this community. God, we want to recognize, we know it's not perfect, but it is real. And God, we ask that you would do it more and that anyone here, God, I pray particularly for those here that have experienced being beat up in places that should have built up. God, I pray that they would find healing even today. That you would know in those situations that they were out of step with the truth of the gospel even as they acted as mouthpieces for you. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's the best news ever. God, and I pray that anybody that came here that was not in Christ, anyone that came here that didn't really think they fell short of you, anyone that came here, who knows how they got here? God, I pray that they would come and find refuge in Christ today. That they wouldn't buy into maybe past things they've heard. It's not through their performance. It's not through their achievement that it can happen today, right now. It's not to go clean up your life and then come back to Christ and be forgiven. It's just turn away from sin into Christ and receive the declaration of no condemnation. And that every single one of us today, whether we've walked with you for, for decades, God, and we've done this countless times, that we would do it again today anew. That we would come back to the safety and shelter of the grace of Christ who became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him.
maybe the word we need to hear loudest is that you are always for us and never against us in Christ. Make that truth soar today. Make it loud tomorrow. Make it loud through this week until we get to gather back together again. In Jesus' name, amen.